0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. For some people, it sounds like an anxiety dream. Imagine having to learn thousands and thousands of words and then get up on stage and recite them perfectly. That's been John Gayden's job for six decades. The acclaimed actor turned his back on a possible career as a lawyer to take to the stage. He has inhabited some of the most demanding roles, including playing Shakespeare's King Lear three times, each two decades apart. The stage is where John Gaydon feels at home, and at the age of 81, he shows little sign of stopping. John, welcome to Conversations.
1: Thank you very much, Sally. great to be here.
0: As a kid growing up in, in Sydney, how important was imagination for you as a youngster?
1: Hugely. Hugely, and from I think from pretty early days, my imagination was vivid. I think is the word. I I was a bit of a bit of a dreamer and drifter. I'd drift off into an imaginative world quite often, which would become quite real sometimes. Apparently, I used to sleepwalk a lot. um, As a as a little boy, I'd go and see a film. And I remember seeing a film, I can't even remember what it was called, but someone was riding through an electric storm from London to Dover. And my father caught me as I was going out the front gate and he said, Where are you going to? And I said, I'm going to Dover. <laughs> <laughs> I, he didn't wake me up, fortunately.
0: That's an interesting crossover at an early age of imagination and, and reality, John.
1: It is. And it's been um, quite helpful. Boy, <laughs> as an actor, because I firmly believe that the great quality any actor needs to have is an imagination. If you have that, if you, in reading a role, if the character springs to you imaginatively, it does all the rest, gives you the voice, gives you the posture, gives you the, you know, all those things. You've still got to work on all those things, they're still absolutely vital. Otherwise, drama schools wouldn't have anything to do. But um, it, it's, it's got to start with a really vivid, imaginative figure in your head.
0: You had two older sisters, so you were the, the little brother. I was. Being the youngest, do you think that gave you some more license for imagination and drifting and dreaming?
1: Yes, they did. They did. They frequently used to dress me up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: <laughs> Are you scarred by this, John? <laughs>
1: Terribly scarred. <laughs> the, day, the day my father saw me <laughs> wearing my sister's Kambala uniform. <laughs> but look, no, that, they, were, they were great. Turned into two wonderful women, both gone now, but um, I still feel very close to... Both
0: that relationship with siblings when it's close, it's such an enduring thing. We know that we will mm. lose our parents, but that sibling relationship, mm. it's, it's vital, isn't really, it? Really,
1: really important. I, I, I still, although the sister I was closest to in age uh, died a couple of years ago, I still think, oh, I must, I must tell her that, I must tell her that. She had, an, she had a bad habit of um, I'd, I'd let her know that I didn't like reading reviews You know, that was just because it it can lead to a double (laughs) double standard. If they love you, they're geniuses, and if they don't, they're idiots. (laughs) So if I got a good review, I would know because she didn't ring me. But if I got a bad one, I'd get a phone call 7 o'clock in the morning after the opening night. Have you seen it? Have you seen it? (laughs) I'd say, no, I haven't, and goodbye. (laughs) Hang up. (laughs) But she was was great. She was a great supporter of, of what I did.
0: What did your dad do for a living?
1: He was a lawyer, a very successful lawyer. He was a solicitor. He he was a wonderful man. He, he, um, <laughs> he, he found it very difficult to charge people for the work that he did. So every Christmas we would get, um, oh, I don't know, packets of smelly fish and bottles of whiskey and things left on the front doorstep because these were people for whom he'd done really quite big work often and, and you know, he never charged them because they were deserving. But he went on to found a very large firm, which I think is still going. I'm clearly not part of it.
0: (laughs) How how central was kindness to your dad?
1: Oh, very. He he was an unbelievably kind man, very um, reserved. He wasn't going about doing kindness, if you know what I mean. He was very reserved. But the number of people who, as I grew older and and after his death, who said, oh, what a wonderful man your father was and how kind he was. And even, even the clients who really should have paid him a lot of money um, said, oh, Mr. Gaiden's so kind. And when he took on some younger partners some years later, they started sending out bills. And these very wealthy people ring up and say, but Mr. Gaiden never sends me a bill. Why are you sending me a bill? <laughs> so it was very really like that, really.
0: And what about your mum?
1: She was great. I mean, she was very forthright. She was one of those people who cannot lie to save herself. Uh, she, she just had no ability to lie. I think very early in, in her life she must have lost her frontal lobes because she would say exactly what she was thinking <laughs> at exactly the time she was thinking And that could be quite disconcerting and it put a few people offside. But she was very funny. And um, look, they were, they were great parents. They made huge sacrifices for us kids. I mean, we didn't in the fifties, we didn't have a car. We must have been the only <laughs> the only family in Double Bay who didn't have a car because they were spending money on school fees for private schools and so on for, for the kids to give them the best. So they were they were pretty wonderful.
0: Through your, your child's eyes, what did that partnership look like with a, a dad who didn't kind of want to say to someone, I need to bill you, but a mum who was quite straightforward? How did that all work?
1: It was feisty. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely feisty. Um, but, look, they, they, they'd they obviously worked out their, how they worked. And, look, as uh, teenage kids... I think particularly my sisters, I was a rather good boy, but my, my sisters were quite rebellious and quite difficult um, and they just rode through it very, very calmly and patiently and they were so supportive of everything. I mean, when I, when I gave up the law, my, my father, I think, was relieved. I think he just said, oh, thank God, I won't have to <laughs> hand the <laughs> well, phone over to my useless son. Um, <laughs> my mother, however, was furious because she had this vision of me in a pinstripe suit you know, swanning down Phillips Street. And, but um, she came round and uh, she then became a great supporter of, she'd come to all the plays. In later life um, she got very deaf and she had a friend called Molly who was had great hearing but very poor eyesight. So they would come to shows together as a sort of symbiosis. <laughs> And I would hear them at the matinees going, what's he, we- what's he wearing now? <laughs> I don't know. What did he just say? <laughs> Which is hilarious because like a lot of deaf people, my mother thought her whisper was quiet and it wasn't. It was kind of like you could reach the back of the stalls with it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a fantastic double act, isn't it? Oh, they were, great. Yeah. they were great. When did you get your first taste of being on the stage at, at school, John?
1: It was uh, at Cranbrook. They had a very active drama department, even before drama was an was a HSC subject, headed by a man called Gilbert Jones, who was a wonderful, wonderful man. He was the French teacher. Uh, and Keith Potten, who directed me in my first play ever, which was the Sweeney Todd, The Demon, Barbara Fleet Street. Not the musical, the, the play. And I played the young hero, That's the last time I ever played a young hero. (laughs) Uh, The next year there was a production of a play called um, Richard of Bordeaux, which is the Richard II story, and I played Richard. And that attracted quite a bit of attention, but it really wasn't until I got to the university and and joined Sydney University Players, and that's, that's when I really started getting the bug badly.
0: What was it like showing an interest in in theater at school? Was it better to be good and interested in sport than wanting to be on the
1: stage? I have to say at Granbrook in in those days it was a very very um people did all sorts of stuff you know there, there was there's always contretemps between ruggerbuggers and and <laughs> And arty people. But, I mean, we all did everything. I played footy. I played cricket. I was an athlete. You know, you did plays. A lot of the buggers were in the play, mostly as soldiers, I have to say. And we had a really wonderful group of teachers then. I mean, a lot of them, some of them were returned men with what we would now call PTSD. They had shell shock, it was called in those days. But they were wonderful men, passionate about their their subjects. And we had all kinds of things like the debating society, the discussion group where we'd meet at a master's house on a Friday night and talk about everything, Uh, Greek play reading group. Um, I mean, it, it was a very lively kind of atmosphere at the school.
0: For you, John, the first time that you were on stage at school, did something kind of click with your curiosity about this? Did it feel right to you at that early stage?
1: Yeah, it did. Uh, it did, but it wasn't like um, wasn't like a, a road to Damascus. You know, <laughs> it it was a slow burn with me, because I thought really I I loved it, but I thought it, but it wasn't the breath of life. A lot of other things were, and I, I didn't think that that was how I was going to make my life. Um, I thought it would be the law or academia or something like that. I as a, as a boy. It was only really when, when, I, when I began to do a lot of theatre at the university and, and attract some attention from critics and, you know, other people that um, I thought, well, maybe this is something... Because I did love it, but it wasn't the big thing at that point.
0: So you arrive at Sydney University. It was quite a time to be on that campus. Yeah. Who were some of the people who were crashing around as undergraduates when you were there? Oh, it
1: was pretty lively. Um, John Bell was there. We did a Twelfth Night and he played Malvolio and I played Toby Belch. The thinnest boy at Sydney University played Toby (laughs) Belch, the fattest (laughs) man in Shakespeare. I had a cushion up my tummy. (laughs) Ken Haller, wonderful Ken Haller, who... Uh, started really, really got Nimrod and then Belvoir going. Uh, Richard Werrett was around. Uh, Clive James was writing review scripts, which were wonderful, really funny. Uh, Leo Schofield was directing plays with Sydney University players. Jermaine Greer was around. We, I did a couple of reviews with Jermaine. What was, what
0: was she like as a young woman?
1: Terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> of course. To, to to a young man to, to a young man with rather with a, from a rather staid upbringing um she was terrifying but wonderful uh she sort of opened my eyes quite a bit she was she was very good to me um i think she thought I was quite funny <laughs> I thought she was very funny. She, her, her signature thing was a strip she used to do. She'd come on dressed as a nun and would slowly strip <laughs> to something fairly skimpy <laughs> while swinging her beads. <laughs> she was great. Um, oh, look, I probably missed out a whole lot of names. Peter Carroll was around then. Uh, it was It was an amazing time because... Basically, I mean, New South Wales had started, but in the, in the late 50s, early 60s, Sydney was sort of the only one. So that's where you went. And if you wanted to do get involved in drama and stuff, that's, that's where you went to do it. And, boy, we did a lot. Pamela Tretharne was running um, the S- uh, Suds, and they did some of the first Pinter, Theatre of Cruelty, Theatre of the Absurd. They were, you know, they were groundbreakers.
0: Coming out of school, did university really open this whole other world for you? Oh, it was a
1: blast, an absolute (laughs) blast. I couldn't believe my luck. Uh, It was a kid in a candy shop, really, and that's why I never got a degree because there were so many other wonderful (laughs) things to do like plays and drink in pubs and and go to parties and it it was pretty good and things were a little more laissez-faire then. I mean, I know when I went to see the Dean of the Faculty of Law to say I thought I really should not make my third attempt at the third-year exams for third year. He said, oh, no, no, we, we like having you here. Why don't you have, have don't another you try? crack? And I said no. <laughs> but, you know, no, that wouldn't happen now, I don't think, probably for good reason. There's just a lot more people. But that, that post-war late 50s, early 60s was a pretty good time to be young and to be alive in, in, in Australia.
0: How conservative, though, was Sydney at that time in some elements?
1: Oh, it was a mix. Sydney, uh, Sydney was such a mix. It was conservative. I mean, you know, beach inspectors used to kick women off Bondo Beach for wearing bikinis and things like that, but it was you could feel it was changing. And people who were, I mean, magazines like Oz and Tharanka with Martin Sharp, Richard Neville, those people, they started making a big dent in the in the staidness and hypocrisy of of Sydney.
0: And at that time, I mean, it's hard to imagine now, at that time to go to a major theatre to see Australian plays on stage Mm. was pretty rare, if not impossible. It
1: was pretty rare, yeah, Um, although it was starting. um, uh, Ray 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 Lawler had written The Doll, which was a huge success. It it was a big success, and there were there were a couple of other, but they were sort of drawing room plays. Some women uh, from an earlier time, and I'm I, I'm not going to be able to remember all their names, but wrote some quite good plays, uh, very good plays, in fact, which are a little bit dated now. But there was there was a scene, it it just hadn't quite taken off as theatre hadn't. I mean, I I was one of the first people to join the old tote theatre which had started in sydney with some money from the elizabethan theatre trust in melbourne there was the union theatre repertory company started by john sumner which started to get some funding but we were really the first subsidized theatres in the country and that it's hard to remember that a time before that when i mean if you were an actor you made your money in radio or in the beginning of television, or some pretty odd films shot in the sand dunes, riding horses, <laughs> those <laughs> sort of movies. Um, but it was um, it, it was a fairly uh, heady heady time in that we started started thinking about not just doing plays, but doing plays with an Australian accent, or doing Australian plays. And it took a while. There was resistance.
0: So given there wasn't much of an industry there, when you're going to your parents and saying, I don't think I really want to do law anymore, I think I want to become an actor, must have been a fairly big deal.
1: Well, I thought it would be a bigger deal than it was. Um, But as I say, my father was very philosophical. (laughs) I think he'd seen the writing on the wall, he knew. (laughs) And it was a huge gamble. I mean, some actors were making money, but I think if you really wanted to make it, you had to go overseas. And lots did. I didn't for all kinds of reasons. I didn't have the funds. The bank of mum and dad stopped when I dismounted (laughs) from the law. Um, (laughs) So I had to make my living. So, I mean, my early training was touring New South Wales for six months as a dragon with the Australian Theatre for Young People.
0: Is that on Uh, your CV, (laughs) (laughs) John? Oh, yes. I'm proud of it.
1: (laughs) Um, And uh, doing young Elizabethan tours in South Australia, which were, Fabulous we did um, Macbeth in forty five minutes and Hamlet in fifty and you played all the roles um, and you traveled in a little yellow bus. It was great, but that wasn't a way to make money, so I mean I was lucky to be in at the dawn of the subsidized company and when finally I got a three virtually a three year contract with the old tote that started the the thing. The reason I got that was was interesting because I'd worked with a wonderful English director called Tyrone Guthrie, fabulous man. And I worked with him in Perth. I was over in Perth doing some stuff and he came there because he had been involved in the design of the Octagon Theatre in Perth. And he, um, he, he he sort of took a shine to me and and uh, took me under his wing. And unbeknown to me, he wrote to Robin Lovejoy, who then ran the Old Tate Theatre, and said, uh, you must employ this actor in my production of... Oedipus which had been on in Sydney but the guy playing the chorus leader had to drop out so I took over as the chorus leader and that that was how I got my break in Sydney
0: Of those very early roles even at, at university when was the first one where you stood on that stage and thought this is where I I belong and this is where I want to be
1: It was probably um probably Corylanus John Bell played Carl Larson. I played old Meninas. I played a lot of old men at the time. But You're ahead of your time, John. <laughs> but it was good. Uh, what
0: was it about that, that that struck you? Do you think
1: because I knew it worked, I knew it had some uh, some validity, some some purpose. Hard to put it into words, but it was uh, a sense of a sense of fulfilment, really that this is what I was good at if I worked at it. And uh, I think that was the beginning of something.
0: Were there nerves there for you in those early days?
1: No, in those days I, had, I didn't have any nerves at all. <laughs> That's something I've acquired. <laughs> as, as one's mental powers and one's physical powers decline, um, <laughs> the nerves become horrendous. But, no, in those days I was bold as brass. I, just, I couldn't wait to get on <laughs> and do my bit.
0: How about the camaraderie? How important was that?
1: Very. Great parties. Great parties. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, in the university theatre there wasn't a lot of competitiveness. You can get a bit competitive in the, in the professional theatre, but mostly not. But it, it was just very, it was a great, it was a great place to be.
0: What was it like bringing some of these plays, particularly to regional towns and cities, when you're showing up to perform condensed Shakespeare or other things? What sort of reactions would you get from the locals when you'd bring this show to town? it was
1: so mixed. I mean, a lot of it was school kids and mostly they were pretty good. Uh, We would be billeted in, in people's houses, which was little bit (laughs) nerve-wracking. It's a lucky dip, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It's a lucky dip. But in some places there would be adults in the audience. And one one show um, in South Australia, halfway through the performance I started hearing bird calls, quite loud bird calls, cockies and parrots and all sorts of things. And there was a woman there. That's what she did. That was her thing. She did bird calls. And whenever Slim Dusty was in town doing... (laughs) and <laughs> he'd call her up on stage and she'd do bird calls. So she thought she might add a few to Hamlet and it, it helped a lot. Really. <laughs> That's not a version of the show I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, well, it's worth, worth it. <laughs> so you, you got a lot of that sort of stuff. I mean the billeting thing, I went to one family in one of the river towns and the first year I got there and, and, and they, it was kind of confronting because they'd come and pick you. Uh, you'd arrive and you'd stand on the station or wherever and they'd pick you out and take you to their house. And uh, this family, I was the last, they took me to their house. And when I got there, I arrived in the back of the ute and and, uh, the father called out to the mother who emerged from the house about five o'clock in the afternoon, hey, Mum, we got an actor. <laughs> <laughs> and she kind of went, Ooh.
0: Sounds a anyway. Wolf Creek or something, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, they, served, they, they served up my meal, my, my dinner, but they didn't join. Uh, they sort of watched. Yeah. And the mother finally said, John, I hope that's all right. We don't know what actors eat. <laughs> And I said, "Oh, I felt like saying, Oh, just fairy bread mostly
0: <laughs> there 's something really lovely about that too oh, and, it's great. and and when yeah. actors come to town, I remember I started out working as a journalist in yeah. Burke, and when yeah. performers would come through, no matter what it was, we would go. so I remember going to see lots of country music." Yeah. And then the band for the Royal Australian Navy came and I remember saying to friends, are you going to go and see the Navy band? Yes, absolutely, because it was something wonderful. So the joy in people's faces, you must have seen that as well, John. Yeah, well, you do. What did you learn about kind of selling those stories and those plays to audiences who might not have a connection initially but you kind of got to win them over?
1: It's odd because, I mean, performing now in subsidised theatres, quite often the audience are very, very well versed, they've seen a lot of theatre, uh, they've travelled, they've seen theatre in London, which of course they always think is better, oh, hum. and all that sort of stuff. But when you're out in the sticks, uh, they don't see a lot of theatre, they don't have a, a habit of, of theatre going. So you have to really suspend their disbelief. They love stories. And if you can if you can story tell with great truth, they won't um, resist, you know. Although I did, um, I remember I did a tour of a, a Williamson play called Money and Friends which went, it, it toured for 10 months. It was very successful as so many of the Williamson plays were. And it toured North Queensland and we got to a town called Eyre and um, they always had a little sort of tea and tinies afterwards, lamingtons and Cold tea, and um, I was talking to one elderly woman who said, "Oh yes, well the the play was interesting, but it's not about us, is it?" And I thought, "Oh dear, yes, it's the city-country divide." I think she was wrong because it was sort of about (laughs) human greed, but you know what I mean. It, It so you win a few, you lose a few, but that veracity, that truth of playing storytelling. Is is what will suspend people's resistance. You need to find that Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sally Sarah.
0: John, when you get a script, how on earth do you learn it?
1: Um, I used to have good learning skills. I had a brain in those days. Now it's a slog. But for me, the first read is very important. If it grabs you imaginatively, you find a way into the character and that's a pretty good start to the process. But then it's a slog. Line by line, learn it, write, learn it, cover it, say it, learn it, cover it, say it. And that can take a lot.
0: Is it harder now, John?
1: Yeah, it's harder now because what I learned today, I can look at tomorrow and think, oh, I haven't done that. And of course I have. You know, I mean, well, it's a short term memory loss, really. And anyone who knows about dementia out there will probably know that I'm showing the first signs. (laughs) I
0: don't think so.
1: (laughs) But there's a thing called muscle memory. So that, when you're rehearsing, I now try and learn all the lines before I go in, but that's not always easy. But once you're in rehearsals and you start what we call blocking it, which is how you move, where you move, when you sit down, when you stand up, when you make a cup of tea, you 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 attach that action to the words you're saying and that makes it possible. And it helps enormously to have the other actors with you because if you really listen, if the writing's good and it usually is, you can hear what you've got to say. Things happen, you know, occasionally I find occasionally what I describe as the big white room opens up. Suddenly I'm standing there in front of 500 people and I'm in a big white room, no windows, no, no doors, just nothing and no lines.
0: You can't remember the line? No,
1: it's gone. And so you'd say, you, you find ways. I had a dear friend, Arthur Dignam, wonderful actor, and he quite often found himself in the white room and he'd just look at his fellow actor and say, your turn, Gade, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was great. I haven't had to use that yet.
0: Is it scary, John, when that happens?
1: Yeah, it is a bit. But I, I have to say, in case there are any directors listening, um, <laughs> and I'm sure there are, um, it doesn't happen very often and it's usually momentary, but it's real.
0: Is it a fear for, for many actors of, of varying ages just forgetting, going blank, what, what the next line is?
1: Absolutely. I, look, I know Lawrence Olivier famously started losing his lines at, at a mid, mid-career mid and you recover from it. it it's, it's, a, it's an anxiety, I think. I know young actors who've, who've had it. I've been lucky. I've never had it seriously, and I've done some big roles. That's just luck, I think. Can't do much else, but I can remember <laughs> lines.
0: <laughs> and what about I mean, you're talking about short term memory, but there's some really interesting things that can happen with longer term memory. Mm. And for you, you've played Shakespeare's King Lear three mm. times, as mm. we were saying. Mm. When you go back to play Lear, mm. is it still there, John? In your still mind? There. That's extraordinary. Totally there.
1: It, it's amazing. So it's, that's five
0: and a half thousand words sitting there somewhere. Yes,
1: yeah, quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, a day or two of work, and and you're back to you're back to where you were. The thing about Leah, it's a wonderful play, and I love it, but it is a very dark place. You can't <laughs> avoid the dark. It's dark, and I think I first played it when, when I was twenty eight and what would i know about the dark <laughs> at 28? a <laughs> very sprightly <laughs> <Nothing. Leo. laughs> oh, very how sp- well i wasn't because they gave me they gave me a cloak which was made of terribly heavy curtain material and nearly weighed me down so that <laughs> made me seem a bit older but look you know some things i got right in that one the the um, fluency of the poetry and, and so on in middle age i played it again and you're beginning to know a bit about grief and and ingratitude and all those things that Leah complains about. By the time you're eighty-one, which I am now, you certainly know what the text's about. You've been there, you've been through the grief, you've been through the what do you think are the slights against you, you've been been through the things you wronged things with the people you wronged who you've then come back to, children you've reunited with. I mean, all those all those things that happen in so many lives, uh, you know about them, you can feel them, you can recall them and emotionally you're right in the middle of them but you just want to sit down a lot because you're old.
0: <laughs> Would you have the stamina to do, Leah, now, do you think?
1: Mm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think about it and, I, I mean, I... Depend on someone asking me, but I wouldn't mind having another crack at it. But I, I, don't know how I'd go.
0: The first Shakespeare I ever saw was you playing King Lear Good in heavens. 1988 in Adelaide. I was right. 17, sitting yes. in the cheap seats as a as a student, <laughs> and I remember one of Gloucester's eyeballs bouncing across the stage Indeed. in that yes. uh, in yes. that performance. How do you come back from that each night? To be in that intensity, your daughter dies, you go through this great storm, how do you switch that off at 10.30 or 11 at night and
1: rest? I've never had much trouble with that. Some actors do. I think it's all about, this is going to sound so simplistic, but it's all about play and play in the sense of the way quite small children play. It's very serious. And then the dinner bell rings and it's all finished and they go and have dinner. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it's that ability to, to turn on and off. And that can, make, that can make for better performance as well, I think.
0: If you know that you can get yourself out of it, does that allow you to go deeper and harder into the, totally. the role?
1: Totally. That, that's, what, that's what saves you. And, and that gives you the freedom to explore great depth because you know you can come out of it. I fortunately don't need to do a lot of research to find the emotional qualities that come uh, quite easily, but it's it's finding the truth of them. that's the difficult part.
0: Now that you are eighty one, what are the lines in Lear that are very, very bare, very vulnerable in in what he's saying about aging and the fear of of losing it?
1: There's lots. <laughs> Partly the scene where he wakes from his madness and he says, I think I am not in my perfect mind. It's a line that's always resonated with why, me. Why
0: do you think that affects you?
1: Because it's such, after all that's gone on in that play, the willfulness, the the savagery, the... the uh, maltreatment of himself and other people, it's a moment of self-realisation. Then the the reunion with Cordelia Cumlitz away to prison, we two alone will sing like birds in a cage. It's beautiful, isn't it? And it's like, um, oh, sorry, <laughs> it gets me every time. Um, it's like they're in a beautiful gilded cage and the world doesn't matter. It's wonderful.
0: You were talking before about the what might be regarded as the slights of of getting older, mm. what do you think are the arrows that really hit that people might not realise can be very, very hurtful?
1: I I try not to be too thin-skinned in terms of comment on on my work. It's partly why I don't read reviews until after the show because there's nothing you can do about it. If they think it's rubbish, well, you can't change it, so you might, <laughs> might as well keep doing it.
0: At this stage of your career with the fabulous memory that you have to be able to to remember these lines often ironically you're playing characters who have lost uh, their memory I know. what's that like for you
1: It's happening a lot lately I, I maybe <laughs> there's something you should tell me <laughs> <laughs> I'm playing a lot of demented people <laughs> um, well in order to play a demented person of course you have to be right on top of it you've got to you've got to know what you've lost if you know what I mean Um I've also the last two plays I've done I've died on stage I've done stage death. <laughs> That's a bit nerve wracking as well. <laughs> Apparently I do it rather well. <laughs>
0: do you get tired of playing those kind of roles?
1: Not really. I get I get I do get tired in long seasons. I'm not physically tired. Very rarely. I, it depends a little bit on the play. Sometimes if the play just hasn't worked or there's unhappiness in it or whatever. I can't wait for it to stop. But mostly, I mean, the last two plays have done wonderful casts, wonderful directors. It's a joy. I love going to work. So that's a plus. I even quite like doing the death scene because I know that then I can go to the dressing room, <laughs> have a <laughs> cup of tea. Put your feet up. <laughs> and a piece of chocolate
0: and stop acting. <laughs> That's quite a good afterlife really, isn't it?
1: <laughs> Heaven really.
0: <laughs> John, you're you're part of quite a special club of uh, actors who have had similar longevity in their careers. I'm thinking of people like John Bell mm. um, and also... Peter Carroll. And Peter Carroll.
1: Yeah. Do Barry or, Otto. Barry Otto. Yeah.
0: Do audiences sometimes give you credit for performances that were not yours? Yes,
1: constantly. <laughs> I'm constantly being thanked for Peter Carroll's performances and that does hurt. <laughs> well, it used to, it used to, but now I say, yes, thank you. I was very good, wasn't I? <laughs> so I, I don't know why it happens, but it's remarkable that it happens. I have once been thanked for a performance of John Bell's uh, and I took that graciously as well. And then years ago, a woman rushed up to me in Queen Street, Rilara, and, and said, I just thought you were wonderful in Bliss. And that was Barry Otto <laughs> in the film. And, I mean, I'm very happy for them and I don't really mind, as long as long as long as they're liking it.
0: How important is it to keep taking risks as an
1: actor? The act of acting is taking a risk. I don't worry too much about image. I mean... People have said to me, "Oh, you're, you're playing such a naughty old man in the, in the current play." Well, it's like a holiday because I normally I, I normally play rather staid, I, <laughs> I play kings and clergymen and lawyers and people like that, you know, so I have a sort of, I think, I think, a kind of professional demeanor. But in this one, I'm a vile old man, and you know, who's called Leo and he's not all that far from Lear, actually. And I just think um, that's a holiday me so I mean some people if you play a vile role they'll think you're a vile person they don't understand the process the process of acting but it doesn't happen very often
0: in addition to your work on stage you've also uh, done some work on screen on the small screen um, and the big screen
1: yeah
0: Uh, for the film eye of the storm you got to shoot an intimate scene with uh, the wonderful charlotte rampling what happened there john
1: She's so terrific and we, we got on very well. We had a scene which was a flashback to I think 30 years before when the character that I was playing, Arnold Wybird, the lawyer, uh, had a one-night stand with the woman who was the mother in the piece and Charlotte didn't need any work at all. She still looked fabulous and <laughs> so on. I, however, did need quite a lot of work and they put a lot of tapes. They put tape around the back of my neck. They put tapes around under my hair, so it pulled all my skin back. So I looked I, I I kind of looked like I'd had too much facial work done basically. But <laughs> a very I, I very surprised man. Very surprised. But at the moment when I lowered myself onto she was reclining on a chaise long, and at the moment when I lowered myself onto her her body, um, I Tilted my head back and all the tapes flew off, <laughs> and my face <laughs> dropped about a foot. <laughs> my double chins appeared, and I—I uh, th- I thought Fred Skipsy would never stop laughing. I think Charlotte's still laughing. It was—if you—if you see the film, it, it's a lot of Vaseline on the lens at that point. <laughs> It was a great experience doing that film.
0: Why do you think the stage has been so compelling for you? Even though you've, you've dealt with um, projects on the screen, what is it about the stage that just keeps drawing you back again and again? Because it's
1: live. Yeah, it's, it's live. I mean, I think the best film and television actors sense an audience that isn't there. Uh, but on the stage it is and they're, they're at least half the equation I mean you can rehearse your butt off in the rehearsal room but until you hit an audience, feel their response, feel what they get, what they don't get, what they laugh at, all that, they're, they're an absolutely crucial part of the process of putting a play together which is why things like um, previews are, are, are important because that's where you learn the play no matter how much research you've done until you've got three, 500 people feeding back. You don't know what you're doing, and I think I think that's I think I think it's really important. And and one of the one of the great definitions of a good director is an ideal audience of one, and that's what you need in the rehearsal room. Someone who can tell you what an audience is going to be, feel about the veracity, the truth, the, the the sort of believability of what you're doing, and that to me is that's vital. And quite often it gets forgotten.
0: How much are you hearing and seeing the audience when you're on stage?
1: You feel them. I, I don't see them a lot. I, I've, I've got a great <laughs> blurring off technique, although <laughs> I have to say the ensemble where I'm working at the moment, they're very close to you and I, I do make contact with their feet occasionally <laughs> um, because they put them on the <laughs> stage. Uh, <laughs> but um, no, I'm, I'm not totally aware. I mean, it's interesting because you can feel silences. You can feel silences that are the silence of boredom and you can feel silences that are on the edge of the seat. I don't know what it is. I wish I did. But That's it,
0: really interesting, mm, isn't it? You can,
1: you can feel the difference. And, of course, laughter. And laughter is sometimes misleading because some, some audiences need leaders. You know, if there's a few leaders in the audience and you'll pick them out quite early on, the rest of the audience will take permission. They say, oh, it's a com Oh, we can laugh. Uh, <laughs> and they laugh. Or not, as the case may be.
0: I saw a play in Sydney a couple of years ago, John, and there were two ladies sitting next to each other who were very engrossed in what was going mm. on, but they had a cask of wine in the handbag <laughs> of one of the ladies. So <laughs> as they were watching, they were topping up as they were enjoying the, the show. I don't know if the actors were picking up what was going on. But,
1: um. Oh, I think I think that's an excellent idea. I think all theatres should provide the chateau <laughs> <Shadow> cardboard.
0: <laughs> how do you think um, being a dad, being a father, mm. how has that... Influenced your acting over the years, and now, now as a grandfather,
1: John, it hasn't had a, an influence on my on my acting. I mean, I was always going to be an acting an actor. Having a son who, very early on in his life, made it clear he wasn't the least bit interested in the theatre, which was fine by me. I said, <laughs> "Great, that's the best news I've heard <laughs> all my <laughs> life." But he he's he's very supportive, I, I must say, whenever. He's in the audience. I get nervous. Why do you think that is? You know, well they know you so well or they might they might overhear someone who doesn't know that they're related, and they might say, "Oh God, look what's he doing? He's dreadful, isn't it?" You know, they might be embarrassed. Uh, I, I worry about all that, but you can't my my grandchildren they're, well, they're just wonderful and they're they're very busy now, young adults, teenagers, and they don't come to the theater, so that's fair enough. <laughs>
0: Your your sense of imagination when the grandchildren were younger, was that a lovely connection for you? It
1: was good, yeah. I saw I saw quite a bit of them as as, as little kids. And you know, playing with kids as a grandparent is is a gift.
0: You've clocked up more than half a century mm. as an actor. Does it feel that it's been that period of time?
1: Sometimes it does. Sometimes I I mean I, I was thinking the other day about Nicholas Nickleby, which I co-directed with Richard Warrett and I suddenly realised that was nearly 50 years ago and it doesn't feel like it. I can still remember the rehearsals. I can still remember that wonderful cast we had, John Howard's fantastic performances, Nicholas, Ronnie Hadrick, Ruth Cracknell, Tony Taylor, all sorts of wonderful, 34 actors, 650 costumes. I mean, it was, it was a big undertaking and it was wonderful. But, but it doesn't seem like a long span. I think it's a question of how you're feeling too. the moment, God willing, and I'm touching a lot of wood, um, <laughs> I feel pretty good, despite having a new knee and no gallbladder and a number of, <laughs> a number of other things that I'm sure you don't want to hear yeah. about. Um, but um, no, I think sometimes you, you wake up in the morning and think, oh my God, I'm old. I feel old. But Mostly I don't because I now have a wonderful garden to look after. I live in the country and um, that keeps me young. Which
0: roles do you still want to play, John?
1: Um, Is it too late for Hamlet, do you think? Is it? (laughs) (laughs) Sarah Bernhardt played it in her 60s with a wooden leg. So, I mean, I think there's a possibility. Um, Look, no, not really. Uh, I might have another crack at at Lear if, if it comes along just Almost as a dare, really. But, no, I am I like other people to suggest to me what they think I might play. I feel more confident with that because in some ways I'm not a very good judge of what I do, That's which an is interesting an odd thing comment. to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I quite often don't know how I act because it's, it's an imaginative response. I can lock it in, but I don't always know where it comes from. And... Uh, probably sounds really convoluted but it's true and sometimes I know in rehearsals when people will laugh or say yeah that was good I think what What? Well, what was you know and I thought I was just doing the text and I I'm not saying that as a as a false modesty I I don't actually know a lot of the time what's good and what's bad I wish I did it would help particularly on film and television when you have to be very aware of what's happening.
0: What thoughts do you have for some of your colleagues who, through lack of opportunities, or maybe they don't feel confident to continue in this career? Are your thoughts with them sometimes as you've continued on and some of well, your colleagues totally. are not?
1: Mm. Totally, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's tough. It's tough. And if you want to um, raise a family and, and uh, have a have a comfortable life, not a great life, but a comfortable life, it's not an easy path. And a lot do sort of dismount halfway through and do other things. Some successfully. Uh, Lots go off and do other courses and become other things. Just recently, um, a wonderful actor who became an agent called James Laurie died and and left a very sizable bequest to the Actors Benevolent Fund specifically to look after 65-plus actors for whom the work has sort of run out and, and who are facing a life without too much behind them. So, I mean, I, one is very aware of it in the business, uh, in the profession, and uh, I, think, I think it's sad because quite often it's got very little to do with talent. Talent doesn't always out you know, it, it can be, for various unlucky reasons, it can just be overlooked.
0: Do you feel fortunate?
1: Very. I am so lucky. I mean, I was born in 1941, so I didn't have to go to the Second World War. I didn't have to go to the to the Korean War. There was a ballot for the Vietnam War, but my name didn't come out of the, the hat. And I was so lucky. Mungo McCallum and I went in for our medical We'd been drinking for two days, hoping that they would declare us <laughs> unfit. They declared us both medically fit, <laughs> but our names didn't come kind out of the um, hat. Uh, I had wonderful parents. I had a great education, which most of which I wasted, but it filled me up. It, it, I still think about the education I had. And I've had a blessed career in, in, in the theatre. I, I couldn't be happier. I'm very lucky.
0: Will the importance of storytelling ever leave you?
1: No. No. It's it's such a it's such a gift, isn't it? I mean, I, I I'm a reader. I love stories. And I love stories of all kinds, you know. Partly why I love Shakespeare, because I I find those stories plays that don't often get done, like The Winter's Tale and stuff like that, amazing stories, beautiful stories. And That will always be a big part of the magic for me.
0: John, Gaden, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations. Thank you, Sally. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.